Welcome to the NACA American Dream Program. Each week, we'll talk about how NACA is revolutionizing mortgage lending with the best mortgage in America. It's no down payment, no closing cost or fees, no PMI, no consideration of your credit score. And guess what? It's at a below market fixed rate. NACA is just relentless. This is the NACA way. This is NACA's American Dream Program. And you guys, listen, NACA is doing what no other company out there is doing. I want you to check. I always say trust but verify. Check to see if anybody else is giving you no down payment, no closing costs, no PMI. And like myself, who had a 480 credit score, tell me who on the banking strip will do what NACA is doing. NACA is no joke. So we're back again. We have the surprise guest. He's back again by popular demand, Eric Exum, who's who's going to tell us and share with us some things that you need to know to do to overcome some of the hurdles that you may not understand to make it easy for you to get through the process. But first, I'm going to go over here to Texas to our mistress of ceremony, the lady who's always in control of everything, Miss Anjanette Dows Thibodeau. Hey, give it up. What's going on? Over hey, here? hey, hey, Damien. And hello to everyone out there in NACA land, to all you Nacalodians who are out there. Welcome to NACA's American Dream Program. This is the day that we are manifesting it. This is Manifested Monday where we're making it happen. And once again, we are, we are in 2022 doing it all just for you. We're making good on our promise to make giving you what you need to succeed in 2022. So yes, this is the NACA American Dream Program. And guess what, Damien? Today is a beautiful day to be out there house shopping because on a 30-year fixed mortgage only at NACA can you get the interest rate at a 2.75%. And guess what? On a 15-year mortgage, Fixed rate, you can get it at a 2.125 only here at NACA doing what we know to do best make those dreams of home ownership a reality. And yes, you said it back by popular demand. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, listen up, lock it in because we have the Eric Exum back by popular demand doing what he knows to do, giving you what you need to succeed in your journey on home ownership. As always, we are here for the next hour and you can always reach us on, on, our, uh, on our line, which is 833-771-0500. 833-771-0500, but throw those hearts up on Facebook and let Eric know that we love the fact that he is back. Yes, ma'am, Erica, yes, he is. Back. <laughs> I'm letting her know ahead of time. Erica, he, he's back. She was the main one saying he's giving me what I need and she's right to succeed in her home ownership journey. Eric, thank you so much for joining. Uh, happy to be here. Good. Oh. Internet, just two things before we get started. I just want to make sure we always reiterate this. This is the question we have every week, every time we're on here. And that question is, when I finish my home buying workshop, what do I do next? I got a call this morning and two yesterday from the home buying workshop that was Saturday. What do you do next? Complete and upload all of your documents, the bank statements, the W-2s, the taxes, your payroll, all of that, upload all of that information, pay your membership fee, make sure you sign the agreements with NACA. Once you've done that, you can either go online, you can either set up your own appointment. And if you don't trust that, you can always give us a call so that we can set the appointment for you. But that's what you got to do next. You got to upload your documents. You got to upload your documents. And the other thing I just want to share with you guys, listen, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to push you forward. Interest rates are going up. When interest rates go up, the money that you currently qualify for, you have less buying power. So waiting and saying, I'm going to wait another six months and see if the interest rates are going down from six to seven months ago, the interest rate was 0.1875. And what did you just say it was, Anjanette? It is now for the 30-year fixed 2.75% interest rate. That is not something that NACA controls. That is something that the government controls. So I just admonish you, don't play around with saying I'm going to do it later because interest rates are going up. So if you want to take advantage of... 
But the good thing about that, Damien, I want to make sure people know that when interest rates go up, the sign is that the housing prices do go down. So there's mm-hmm. there's pros and cons to, to each side of it. So, True. you know, True. I don't want to scare them. I want people that if their desire is to get a home ownership, don't worry about all of that. Just go straight in and get straight qualified. That's exactly right. If you don't mind me jumping in and what Anginet said is true, that typically when rates go up, the the prices tend to level off and then ultimately start coming down. Because at the end of the day, a person can afford or is willing to pay X amount per month for that particular house. So whether Mm -hmm. rates go up and prices come down or prices go up and rates go down, it tends to be a similar payment that the market's willing to pay for that particular house because virtually everyone buys a house with a mortgage, meaning monthly payments. Right. And the best time to buy is not to is not to worry about rates going up or 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 the prices of housing going up. I mean, the best time to buy is when you're ready financially to buy, Readiness. and when you have an affordable payment that works for you, and you can find a house that fits within that affordable payment, regardless. Of and rates that's rates. why Eric is back to get you that information. Thank you, Eric, for sharing that information. And Jeanette, I know we got a load of questions. Oh, my goodness. Again, Yes. Keep them coming on Instagram. My Instagram community and family out there. Thank you for all these questions. Facebook, keep them coming because we got you locked in, too. And as always, 833-771-0500. But Eric, I'm just going to go dig right in because we got them coming. (laughs) And you know, with you, we always run out of time. So let's let's never finish. Let's take advantage of this is our EE time, guys. We're going to get all the EE we need right now. So let's go right in. The first question is, when will NACA allow people to buy a second property after buying their first one with the program? Oh, it's an excellent question. Well, NACA doesn't prevent people from buying properties after they buy the house that they bought through NACA. The key is the house you buy through NACA must be affordable for you and you and your family or you have to live in it for the whole term that you have the NACA mortgage with. Once you buy a house through NACA, you can buy additional properties in the future. There's no time limit. But typically, I mean, and, and our program is for low and moderate income people. So generally speaking, a low and moderate income person isn't in a position to buy multiple properties in a short period of time. So short answer is there's no waiting period, but the reality is for most of us, we need to see how our finances settle out after we buy a house that typically takes at least three years to really understand the cost of maintaining the house, the cost of the utilities going up, even your gasoline, because typically we buy houses further away from you know, our income and our, our lifestyles than, um, than we rent. So factor all that in, see how that hits your pocketbook basically and your budget, um, and then consider the additional investment properties if that's something that you're interested in. Thank you, Eric. And just toggling, toggling on over to Facebook. Hi, Sheena out there in Facebook land, throwing you up the hearts. Eric, can I buy a, or purchase a home through the courthouse due to unpaid taxes? You can. Will, will um, those, those are options. You? you can. So, but there's some, but you got to keep in mind there's a couple of caveats to that. So to buy an auction house, a lot of the auctions in twins or jurisdiction, um, they have a really short window of when you have to provide the payment in full, often less than 30 days, sometimes less than 20. So you have to make sure that you get your contract fully executed, uploaded to NACA, and you're you already qualified. It's well within your affordability. You figured out the tax and insurance already, and your counselor gets it uploaded immediately and through the NACA credit access process. If any of that doesn't go perfectly, you'll end up losing the property because they're pretty serious in, in those auctions. That if you don't get that money together in X amount of time, depending on the jurisdiction, then they they sell it to the next person. And be really careful giving earnest money in those circumstances with the short windows if you don't have a financing contingency or contingencies that protect your earnest money deposit. That's helpful. That's very helpful. Go ahead, Danny. Eric, Sorry. I have a, a question that somebody just asked me yesterday about tiny homes and container homes. Does NACA allow tiny homes or container homes? So generally speaking, NACA does not do... Um, homes that are not traditional for the market. 
So tiny homes are becoming a little bit more traditional in certain markets. So in short, and container homes, there's not going to not going to be able to do specialty homes like that. Um, berm homes, container homes, even sometimes mill homes. However, if it is typical for the market, meaning they can get appraisals that that are comparable and find other properties comparable to put on the appraisal for the one that the member's interested in, then we can do the financing. So tiny homes, in many cases, yes. Container homes, in most cases, no. Okay. All right. And, wow. Eric, okay. and Eric, I'm going to jump to another question that kind of ties into the interest rate and things that we just finished talking about and what kind of homes. And one of those questions is, does it make sense to start the process now with the housing prices going going up or the housing prices the way they are right now? Does it make sense to, to buy now or wait till later? You know, it's one of the best questions I ever get. And it's always the right time to start the process because you always want to position yourself to get financial counseling and know exactly what you qualify for and what you can make an offer on right now. You can maintain your qualification. So even if you qualify today, but you don't find anything that you're happy with for that price, just keep your documents updated and, and maintain your qualification until you do find the property. As we talked about a little bit earlier, you know, there's no best or worst time to buy a house. Everyone tries to figure out uh, as an investment. We don't do mortgages for investments. We do mortgages for people to start building generational wealth and to help people get into an affordable housing payment that doesn't change significantly. So, you know, the principal interest will never change. Your tax and insurance are likely to go up over the years. So you do have to prepare for some change in your monthly payment. But that change is typically a lot less than the increases we see in rent. So short answer, it's always the right time to prepare, to position yourself to make the purchase. But to the, to the person who's asking this point, don't make the purchase if you feel like you're paying too much. Um, and that's where the appraisal process comes in. Make sure that you know, the house is worth what you're paying for it. A lot of people pay more than the appraised amount. And right now, you know, as everybody knows, housing prices are very high, um, kept up high because of COVID people wanting to own the space that they're inhabiting when you can't get out as much. And because uh, as you said, Damien, interest rates staying so low for so long. Mm -hmm. It's actually a good thing for our economy that the interest rates are starting to rise. So Eric, let me ask you this. Speaking from a homeowner's perspective, if I'm going through the process and I have dependents that are working, but they're my dependents, they just happen to have jobs. Why must I upload their documents, their pay stubs, and W-2s into the NACA portal. Why do you need that? Oh, I like these questions. These are really intelligent questions. The reason you do that is because NACA does not qualify applicants. We counsel households. We need to understand the finances of the entire household to understand the applicant's affordability. If I don't put my wife on the loan, she still exists. She still has income or she doesn't. She still has you know, car payment or she doesn't. She still has cost of living or she doesn't. If I pretend she doesn't exist and I just focus it on, on what I can afford for me, then how are we going to sustain? So if she has extra income, we have affordability or more affordability for the house. But if she doesn't have an income, she still has to eat, you know, have transportation, you know, have the basic entertainment needs. So everyone who's going to be in the household that, uh, you know, the one that's getting purchased through the program. So everyone who's going to be in that household um, who has finances, so meaning you have either a job or debt or both, will impact the affordability of the applicants. So again, NACA counsels households, not applicants. And speaking Eric, of, oh, go ahead, Damien. So Eric, from what I'm understanding, if it's the, uh, the husband and wife and say two adult children in the household and they're all working, even though the father is the only one that's going to be on the loan, are you saying that the other three income could increase um, the, the affordability? Absolutely, could increase yeah, or I didn't decrease. Know that. It can go wow. Either way. Well, that's that's how it works, right? Just because just because my wife's not on the loan doesn't mean she doesn't have an income. You know, in my case, she does. So she contributes to the household, and it increases our affordability for housing and and other things. Um, it could go the other way though. If she didn't have an income, but she had a car payment, credit cards, whatever, whatever. Um, then I have to cover those. So it decreases the affordability that I can put towards the housing payment. That so is good the, to know. The income and the debt. 
income and debt. I always think about it in terms of income and debt. And to be very specific, here's how we're going to do the calculation. If someone does not document at least three times the income as their debt, so to do it in math, if my household member has a $500 car payment, if she doesn't document at least $1,500 per month, that car payment goes into my liabilities and is part of the limiting factor of debt to income ratio. Wow, Eric. I love it. Great explanation. And I love how you explained it. And now with that, and speaking of jobs, and we're on the topic of it, Kim, thank you so much out there in Facebook land for the question. Kim is asking, what kind of job do I need to qualify? I know the answer to this, but let's just talk about it and hash it out. We just finished talking about dependents' income, but what kind of job does Kim need to qualify? It's a broad question, but the answer is simple, a stable job. So you can be self-employed, you can be W-2 employed, you can get 1099s, you just have to have income stability. So generally speaking, for the most recent 24 months, there shouldn't be gaps of more than 30 days without, without income or employment. We can make exceptions after 12 months, but generally speaking, you should have gone 24 months. If COVID was the, the culprit in a gap in employment, and that's clearly documented, you're back to work, um, your current situation is stable, and your employer tells us through your employment verification that the probability of your continued employment is good, then we can absolutely work with those gaps due to COVID and, and or medical reasons or anything. That, so, so think about it this way. If there's a gap in employment for an isolated incident that's over and we can document that it's over, you know, you got into a car accident and you couldn't, you know, you couldn't walk and you're a, a, a school security guard where you need to walk. So you were out of work for six months, but now you're healed and you're back to work. That was isolated. It's not likely to happen again. Then we would use your current income as stable, as long as your employer said it was stable, especially if you go back to the same job, then it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a significant factor at all. Wow. Love it. And Eric, now that we're talking about jobs, income, uh, we're proof of the income, tax returns and things like that, the IRS, and speaking of the pandemic, the IRS has been really, really slow getting tax returns done. And we have a question out there saying IRS has been slow with the tax returns. Last year, my spouse did not get her return to her returns or her transcript yet. And it's holding us back from the process. What do we do when we can't get our hands on the transcript? And he's also saying we have the minimum required funds and everything else to qualify. We just can't get our hands on the transcript. Yep. Excellent question. And this is a question that a lot, a lot of our staff ask this time of year. So some states are significantly behind. The federal government this year um, has documented that they're on track to be on time for federal filings. And NACA you know, just looks at the federal fi filing. But to answer the question, if you can't get your transcripts, because the federal government will tell you it takes up to six weeks to obtain transcripts after filing, and it's tax season right now, started the 24th of last month, and you have to file by April 18th, April 19th, if you're in Massachusetts or Maine. So everyone else, we have to have your, your filings, your 1040 filings. The best way to handle it, if you know that they're not going to be ready at the time you need to go to bank or close your loan, then make sure you, you go to the IRS office. They will actually stamp a copy of what you're going to file, return it to you as evidence that that's what you brought to them for filing. You can also get something similar when you do electronic filing. But in short, you have to document what you filed. So a copy of your 1040, trans, uh, 1040, if you can't get the transcripts, then you'll have to have the IRS give additional documentation that they received that particular filing. Gotcha. That's gonna be particularly true. Okay, so just extend that a little more. For most wage earners who have been at the same job um, or jobs for the most recent two years, that's not gonna be nearly as big of an issue because we don't necessarily have to provide the 1040, 1040 uh, tax returns. And we can work with the lender because they understand they're gonna get it with the 4506C in many cases, but they understand they're not available. As long as we provide the 4506C, which is something the member is gonna sign that gives the, the lender permission to get a third party copy of what they did file. The lender will close the loan anyway and just use the 4506C in audit. That's not going to be true, however, for self-employed members. 
or members who are on fixed income, like social security disability, if they have to file. A lot of people on fixed income can simply document that they're not required to file. But if you, if you do have fixed income, we do need to provide you 1040s for the history. Um, and if you're self-employed, we must provide the 1040s for the history. And in those cases, just make sure you get an IRS stamp on your tax returns. The IRS stamp has to be on self-employed tax returns in the event that they cannot provide the, the transcript. Correct. Gotcha. Right now, we can use, if you haven't filed yet, we can actually use last uh, the 2020 filing. But for self-employed members, that's going to get that's going to get a little bit um, difficult because it's been more than a year since you filed um, or since um, since we've documented what you filed because it went up until December 31st of last year right. uh, of 2020. So, you know, it's going to be really important to your cash flow analysis. And we can actually use the 2020, but we're going to really make sure looking at each and every bank statements for 12 consecutive months that the cash flow from 2020 that we see on your tax returns has improved or is very stable since. So, Eric, let's talk about that. Since, since people were talking about transcripts and IRS and delays, Ramona out there is saying, and thank you, Ramona, for the question. Ramona is saying, if I'm going to delay my home search, what should I do if I've already met with my counselor twice, I'm set, but I want to delay it? What should they do? Just so, it updated or... Yeah, um, so if, if you're delaying your home search, meaning you've been through the qualification process already... Um, that, that, that makes sense for a lot of people. Truth, truth be told, it's really hard to find a, a house, especially in the Northeast, in the winter. A lot of people don't show houses in the winter. They come back on the market, usually late March, April, spring. depending on you know, the weather in your area. That's exactly right. In the spring, we see a lot more inventory. And, and guys, you should know that a lot of institutions have documented, um, including Zillow, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, that they plan on putting a lot of houses on the market in 2022. Um, so that's great for us that we'll have a right. lot more um, inventory out there. But to your point and to answer the question, that's exactly right. Just make sure you keep updated. Every time you pay your rent by check, make sure you keep a copy of that canceled check. Um, every time you get a bank statement, make sure you keep a copy and upload it to your web file. Every time you get a pay stub, make sure you upload it. You know Anything that's happening with your finances. In addition to all that, continue to update your budget. Hopefully you've had good budget counseling with your counselor. And you've learned a few things. It's one thing to sit down with a pen and paper and talk to somebody about it. It's a whole nother thing to actually look at that budget when you're out there spending. And then you go the next month and you look at everything you spent money on. Was it consistent with what you thought you were spending money on? Was, is it, so was your real life consistent with what you did on paper for a budget? Um, I find that most people's are not. You know, we forget about a lot of the little things that come up in life. Basically, you know, at the end of the day, when it comes to a budget, if it doesn't work on paper, it's not going to work in real life. And yeah. just because you put it to paper doesn't mean that's how you're actually <laughs> living in real life. That is true. Eric, that wisdom is coming through. Go ahead, Damien. Definitely. Eric, so I'm in my fifth month and I still haven't found the house that I wanted. And so that means by the sixth month, my qualification or whatever disqualifies uh, or, or is no longer valid. Can you walk me through what is the process that I need to do or what happens to now be requalified? Because some people may be scared that, look, it took me two years to get here. So now it's going to take me another two years to requalify. What does that look like? So we can quell some of these, you know, the thoughts that people have in their minds. Another great question. A uh, qualification does expire in six months, but don't panic. Requalifying is very simple if nothing derogatory happened in your finances. So generally speaking, you can requalify by updating your bank statement, your pay stubs, showing your rent that you paid rent on time since you qualified last, mm -hmm. and pulling a new credit report. So if you didn't increase your credit card debt, your, your installment debt, then you're going to qualify pretty much the same. What's really nice about a qualification expiring is if you did what, if you worked hard at saving extra money, you may increase your qualification because now when you update your bank statements, it may reveal more affordability yeah. or in other words, a stronger payment shock savings pattern. 
I get that all the right. time. Some people want to take some time and pay some things off, even though the counselor didn't tell them that that's a requirement. They want to increase their purchase power. So they're they're taking a little bit of time off to pay some things off that they're just a few payments shot of being done. And I think that's a good thing, Eric. What do you think? I, I think it's a great thing. And I'm going to go off on a tangent here because you, you set off something that's really important. And I because I agree with you. And I think most people, if you have any ability to, once you save up your minimum required funds and then have your reserves and a little bit of extra cushion. Now, if you're serious about buying a house and you have credit card debt, pay them off. It's going to give you cushion after you buy the house because Murphy Law is, Murphy's Law happens, right? You buy a house, things break. Um, you didn't realize you needed a lawnmower and you have to buy one of those and then a weed eater or you got to hire somebody to take care of your lawn. All these things that you didn't necessarily factor in your short-term budget. So as long as you paid down your credit cards and, you know, it gives you a little bit more room, a little bit more cushion uh, to maintain everything after you close. It also, as, as Jeanette point, points out, it also strengthens your ability to, to get a higher approval payment, you know, PITI, if income to debt ratios were a limiting factor for you. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just a great thing to pay off credit cards because a lot of them have a, really a lot of interest. And basically, you're paying interest on money you already spent on things That's like right. And often non-necessities, things like meals out, um, clothes that you don't necessarily need, you know, um, hair care, nail care, which is important, um, but not necessarily necessities. So if, if you get really focused about paying off your credit cards before you buy a house, you'll teach yourself the areas that you're willing to tighten your belt when things do get tough in home ownership. And the way you should pay off your credit cards, if you have multiple Say, you know, your minimum payments for all of your credit cards combined are $200 a month mm -hmm. and your ability to make payments to them is $300 a month. What you do is you make the minimum payment on all of your credit cards, except for the one with the smallest balance on that pay one, pay 300 a month yeah. until that one's paid off. Now that one might've had a $50 per month, for example, minimum payment. So now your affordability is 350. So now you pay the minimum payment on all the rest and you pay you know, the extra, the extra 150 on the next smallest one and the next one until you get them all paid off. Um, you get a sense of accomplishment as you pay them off. You, you're killing complete interest as you're paying off. Um, you're actually building your credit score as well as you're paying them off. Um, generally Absolutely. Speaking. Yep, and credit goes if up something instantly. happens, you've now freed up that money that's available to you, you know, if you hit a wall after, after owning a house. You know, I, I don't recommend getting back in credit card debt, but it does give you a little bit of cushion if something happens. Right. Eric, Jamie, you had something? My, say my car note is $450 a month. And when I come to NACA to get qualified, I have 12 more payments. What can and cannot happen or possibly could happen? Because I heard something about 10 months, but I don't I suspect really understand. he knew the answer to this, but he wanted other people to know it, which is good. <laughs> uh, but if, if debt to income ratios are the limiting factor, so let me put it out there first, that affordability comes first regardless of ratios. NACA doesn't do what's called ratio qualifying. We don't just look at 40% of your debt to income ratio or 31% of your housing ratio. We look at what you, your history of what you've been able to pay for a housing payment plus your savings pattern. That's what your affordability is. Then there's limiting factors of housing ratio and debt to income ratio. If your debt to income ratio um, is too high and that is a limiting factor, exactly as you're saying, Damien, if you pay off installment debt, so be careful with a car because if you're leasing your car, this doesn't, this doesn't work. Because when you, when you finish with a lease, what do you have to do? You still have to take a car payment because no one, you know, leases are um, fairly new cars, right? It's very rare for somebody to go leasing a nice car for 50 a month to riding the bus the next day after lease is up. No, they either have to buy that car out or they take on another lease or they take on a purchase with a car payment. So you can't get rid of a leased car payment. But if it's installment debt, child support, student loans, car loans, personal loans, installment debt means there's a set number of payments and a set amount you pay per month. And when it's done, it's done. Very common for cars, 60 months or 72 months. If you only have 12 months left, if you pay it down. So in, in the case that you're saying, if you pay $900, you know, I'd, I'd be careful and pay like 950 to make sure you didn't hit exactly. And um, 
and have to go through that process again. But if you pay it down to, to 10 payments or less and document that you did, the 450 per month car payment will no longer be factored in your debt to income ratio. I love that. I love that. Thank you, Eric. Well, thank you. Um, that's, it's good that you pointed that out to everyone. I think that was right. Good. Absolutely. And we are at the halfway mark. And this is <laughs> Macca's American Dream Program, where we have the Eric Exum giving us all the words of wisdom and the financial capacity, the financial know-how to get us through the home purchase process. Again, reach us at 833-771-0500. Eric, wanted to talk to you about we just finished talking about delaying the process or us choosing us as members choosing to delay the process for whatever reason but i got someone on here tony is saying i got bankruptcy coming soon i will be going she knows for a fact she is going to be going through the bankruptcy process should she put her purchase process on hold where does she go from here eric Oh, that's a that's a great question to ask your bankruptcy lawyer. Generally speaking, speaking, the answer is absolutely put the home buying process on hold. The thing about bankruptcy is it's a protection order. It's there to protect you um, from the stress of financial collapse. So you'll have a judge and you'll have trustees. Now, if you just bought a house and then file bankruptcy, the judge is going to look at you sideways. Yeah. <laughs> And they might not let you keep it. So it's going to depend on if you're filing a chapter seven or a chapter 13. A chapter seven is where you're trying to get rid of your debt. Basically, you're not going to repay anyone. A chapter 13, you go into a payment plan. If you just bought a house, chapter seven is probably not going to be an option for you. The, the judge very infrequently will let you keep or what's called reaffirm your house. Yes, and allow you to you know, file a chapter seven. So um, depending on how much you owe, and, and what an excellent question this is, depending on how much you owe, it's probably better to go ahead and file, get it dismissed. Uh, I'm sorry, get it discharged. You don't want dismissed. You want to get bankruptcy discharged, mm -hmm. um, depending on your jurisdiction. Um, you know, that can, that can be three months, six months, a year. Um, and then once it's discharged, generally speaking, it'll take about two years to build yourself back up to buy a house. The reason why, and, and that two years goes really quick. You'll be surprised how fast it goes. Um, the reason why that's usually better is if you get into a 13, you're going to be in a payment plan for a minimum of 36 months. And so you're looking at three years anyway. Um, even if you buy the house, three years of making payments back to other people. Uh, most people are better off just going ahead, getting rid of the debt. Then they're in a position to save for the two years, build up their finances, and then they're in a position to buy a much more house or a much That's better right. house um, once they've gotten rid of that old debt. That's exactly wow. right. So Eric, I'm going to throw a couple of things at you. I'm toggling back on Instagram and thank you, Instagram, for these wonderful questions, but it puts a lot of things in, in mind here. Let's talk about, and this is one for me, but let's talk about being newly married and getting ready to purchase a home. How does newly married um, affect you when your home purchasing decisions uh, are going through the purchase program? And then talk about being, we just finished talking about tax time, knowing what you need to do with your tax refunds and what you do actually do with your tax refunds is two different things. I got somebody on here who just bought a car and now want to go through the purchase program. So first of all, let's talk about being newly married. How okay, I'll let you all that. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll talk about that car too, because that's not necessarily a bad idea, but yeah. with newly married, it depends, right? It, it depends on where your finances was with that person before you got married. Some people together for years and they already have joint finances. They understand how each other um, spend money. They've been in it together. They've been living together. And it's just a technicality that they were newly married. And that is a legal technicality. Um, so they'll both be on the deed, generally speaking. Uh, most states require it. Um, so for, th for those members who have already been sharing the finances, not going to affect the process by a whole lot because you're going to, again, um, because that's someone who's going to live in the house um, long term, you're going to make sure you understand the affordability for the whole household. You know, so now both partners in the marriage. 
Um, if it's a different scenario where you didn't even you didn't even check that person's credit before y'all got married, and you don't really know how they spend, you you he have got to all them bills, girl. He got all <laughs> the bills. How <laughs> 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 you know, you know, credit is not to be shared in terms of using each other's, but definitely check that credit before you marry somebody. Not not to say don't marry them, just know what you're getting into financially, because um, because one of the three top or leading causes of divorce. Um, is not being on the same page with finance. Um, so, so it is very important that you're on the same page. Well, if you if you aren't and you're just now figuring out what each other are doing for finances, then you probably want to take a year living with that person and co-mingling funds and seeing if you can do separate finances, completely put everything together, figure out your affordability after getting married changes tremendously. Again, if you didn't already have your finances um, settled with that person. So if you're just new to being with somebody who you're going to be with over the long term, it is going to change your finances, maybe for the better, maybe for the worse. You know, some people bring in a lot more money to the household. Some people spend, spend, spend way more than they make. Um, you have to figure that out and figure out your affordability and make sure it's stable before you buy a house. On to your question about a car. Um, that's really interesting you say that. Um, in the outside world, um, meaning anyone but NACA, a, a, a broker who's trying to make money on a loan, they're generally going to tell you don't buy the car before you buy the house. I'm going to tell you the opposite. Understand what your car payment's going to be and buy the car before you buy the house. Be very smart about the purchase. Be conservative because it is going to impact your affordability. Make three to six months worth of payments on the car while living your lifestyle so you understand what your affordability is for your house after that. Because what happens is if you go ahead and buy the house and then buy a car three months later, what happens if you can't afford both now? People get in their mind, they say, well, I have to have the car to get to work. So I'll let a couple of house payments go behind. Well, the house you know, is something that's gonna appreciate over time, generally speaking, when you pay it off, it's gonna have great value. Where a car tends to depreciate over time. Right. Um, so the house purchase is the more important purchase, but if you need to be able to, to finance both, understand while you have the interaction of a counselor who's working with your budget, work with them to really understand what you can afford for a car payment, get that car payment, make sure you get it for that, for that amount. Cause we all, you know, you know how it goes. You go to a dealer and you have in your mind, I'm going to come out of here with no more than $350 payment. And then you say, wow, you know, the computer chips are behind, all the cars are heavily priced, you know, and then you walk out with a 420 payment. Yeah. Well, that's going to affect how much you can afford for the house. Um, so you have, so it's, a, so it's smart to do that first because you're going to have that payment, you know, for five, six, seven, eight years. Correct. Makes sense. And not to forget my, my, my callers that are calling in 702. I see you calling twice. 702 is saying, I continue to do exactly what you said. I'm updating my file with my additional pay information and things of that nature. And what, what happens when my counselor is not able to see anything I upload? And that goes right into my Instagram question of why can't my counselor see the documents I upload? I have to keep uploading the same documents over and over again. Is this customary? Is it a glitch? What's happening? I have to look at the individual files. So no two is Las Vegas. Um, the way our system works is absolutely when you upload using a web file or even if you email documents to email NACA ID number at NACAlinks.com, it goes straight into our proprietary software. So if it was a glitch and when you went to upload, it'll give you an error message and tell you that, the, that it didn't go through. So I doubt if it's a glitch. Um, it actually goes into a, a, a placeholder in our system called scan documents when you mm -hmm. upload documents and your counselor goes into scan documents and moves them to where they belong. So if you uploaded bank statements, they'll move to the bank statement section or the, or the asset section. If you uploaded pay stubs, they'll move into the pay stub section within the income section and so on. Um, so I do hear that a lot. Um, unfortunately, the reality is, um, you know, there might be a disconnect between that member and that counselor, because when somebody uploads the documents, they, they absolutely go into our system. Um, and you can, you can always call member services and get verification, have member services go in and look, hey, I uploaded my pay stubs today. Um, can you make sure that they're there? 
Um, the reason why I, ha- I would have you call member services, it's going to be difficult to reach your counselor during the day. Yeah. Just like when they gave you their full attention when you had your scheduled appointment, they're giving someone else their full attention when they have a scheduled appointment. So the, the counselor only has small windows in between appointments and before they start their day and after they start their day, uh, after they finish their counseling day to process documents return emails, return phone calls, and so on. So take advantage of using um, the member services line to check and verify that the documents are in the file. And Eric, as we're referencing member services, we've referenced member services a couple of times through this program. And just for all of you guys that are listening, that number is 425-602-6222. That's 425-602-6222. Can I say something cool about that? Yeah. Well, we did the, what we did last year is um, we integrated our entire phone systems. So you can actually dial any NACA number. Mm-hmm. So the old office number, if you, if you were in the Atlanta office and you knew the Atlanta number, if you knew the Boston office and you knew the Boston number, um, you could dial any NACA number. Mm-hmm. And then when the prompt comes on, just select option seven and it'll take you right to member services. Such a cool phone system now. Ooh, cool, cool, cool. Wonderful. Wonderful. Eric. Go ahead, Damien. Sorry. Um, what, so I don't want to make it too laborious for the member, but what I want to understand is what you just said about emailing to email at um, NACA ID at NACAlinks.com. What I'm afraid of, would it make it better if I have bank statements for the last three months, payroll, not to make it one single document and send it, but would it be better to send it as each separate document or would it be okay to send it as one complete 30 page document because I don't want to put too much where the, the the counselor is having to go through and sift and this is page one through five, this is six and seven. Would it be better if they if they send it via email but do a document for each? You said it perfectly. So um, first thing, it's always better to upload directly using the web file, not sending it through the email. I gave you the email as a backup method if somebody is just really struggling with the technology of uploading um, through their web file. Exactly as you said. And then whenever you send us any documents, try to always compartmentalize it. So my March bank statements, you know, I'm sending those alone in PDF. April, I'm sending those alone, May and so on. My pay stubs, I'm sending them alone. We do have the technology to split up the, you know, one giant PDF into the multiple areas where it goes. But just think about it, guys. Your counselor is very busy counseling other members and processing their files. The easier you make it for your counselor to process your file, the smoother and the faster they're going to be at getting to your file. If you just slap stuff in there and say, let them deal with it, you know, unfortunately, you're going to end up with your, your file on the bottom of the pile because nobody wants to do the extra work. Yeah. You know, the, the NAC counselors are incredibly dedicated and hardworking, but if you make it hard for them to get you qualified, you're really making it hard for you to get qualified. Thank you. Eric, and, and that, that brings a good question, uh, talking about the counselors and they're, they're giving one person their undivided attention as they gave the, the member that's asking the question now. But there's also some questions out there about my counselor constantly contacts me at the times that I tell them not to contact me. Can we just talk about that? I think I know the reason why they're, they have a heavy pipeline. They're trying to talk to you and catch you to give you at least leave you the messages. But, you know, we have some people that are calling and on Instagram asking the question. My counselor continues to call me at times when I when I tell them it's not the best time and they insist on talking to me right then and there. Why? Yeah, that's a tough one because um, especially for our third shift workers um, who are trying to get some sleep and, we, you know, they ask, hey, please don't call me until after four because when I get off the shift, I, mean, I need to get a decent night's sleep or day's sleep in their case. Um, so I absolutely understand that. But it's exactly what we talked about earlier. Um, counselors are just trying to get you moving in between their sessions at the beginning or end of the sessions. So, you know, um, all you can really do is continue to remind your counselor Um And, you know, if most members tell us that buying a house right now is their number one priority, you know, if you can juggle things around to really focus when you have your counselor's attention, you know, that's not possible for everyone. Like I said, you know, different shift workers or a school teacher, you can't drop everything, you know, can't leave the the classroom. 
um, or the or the Zoom room to to manage you know personal affairs. So I, we absolutely understand that. We don't want anyone to lose a job or or put their job at risk by trying to manage a home buying process when they're supposed to be working. Don't do that. You know we we don't want our counselors to do that either, right? Um, people right. need to focus on their job when it's time to focus. So you know, unfortunately, there's not you know. There's not one clean answer to that. Just work with your counselor, continue to give those times, discuss with them when they're available, when you do have them, discuss with them when they're available and you're available simultaneously. But generally speaking, it's just because they're trying to get with you when they have a little block of time to get your file moving. And I want to make sure I ask Kim's question because we get this question, Kim, just so you know, we get this question every single show that we do. Eric, let's talk about non-priority versus priority because Kim is asking if you are a non-priority member and the city you live in don't have hardly any MSA priority areas, but the number of minorities there are 1% or less, can you still get a house there through NACA? So, so um, it's, it's a great question. So priority um, is about income, not about race, right? So a priority member is someone who is below... Uh, below 100% of the median income for that greater metropolitan statistical area. And you could just go to the FFIE website or the link on NACA's website to see specific addresses, or you can download the Excel for all metropolitan statistical areas called MSAs. So um, for example, in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I sit, the median income for a household is $70,300 per year. So if the household coming through the NACA program or the applicants coming through the NACA program have more or make more than 70,300, they're non-priority. Um, and they're limited to only being able to purchase in a priority community. On the flip side, if their income is below 70,300, they're a priority member and they can buy anywhere within that metropolitan statistical area. So if you're non-priority, you have to purchase in a community that's below 100%. So in each metropolitan statistical area, there's about 5,000 smaller neighborhoods that are broken out. And you know, that, that's an average. You know, some it's 3,000, some it's 7,000 or so. But so there'll be 5,000 smaller neighborhoods. Each of those neighborhoods, and we know what they are, right? There's different neighborhoods that have higher incomes, you know, South Charlotte versus West Charlotte, um, you know, certain parts of Atlanta versus other parts of Atlanta and so on. Um, you know, in New York City, if you, know, if you just cross into Long Island, sometimes there's much higher incomes than if you're in Rosedale or the first town in Queens. Um, so that'll change the income significantly when you change neighborhoods. The neighborhood that you're purchasing in, if you're non-priority, must be a, a census tract that's below the median income. Now, what's interesting about priority and non-priority, that's, that's for any NACA eligibility. Then there's a small segment of people. So NACA, when you talked about the interest rates today, the NACA interest rate is 2.75 for a 30-year fixed loan and 2.125 for 15-year. And people, if you can, take advantage of that 15-year loan. The interest rate buy-down is more aggressive. And you know, putting yourself in a position to own the house in 15 years is awesome. And you build equity a lot faster. So even if you do sell, you know, you've paid off a lot more of it in a much shorter period of time. So, so keep that in mind. But back onto priority and non-priority. There's also a small segment of people who are non-priority members, meaning their income is above the median income, but then they find a house between 80 and 100% of the median income in the census tract. Well, they're not eligible for the same interest rate. They're non-priority members and they're not buying in a target community. The target community is somebody who's um, that census tract neighborhood is 80% or below of the greater MSA. So if that neighborhood is above 80, but less than 100, that member is still eligible, but they're going to get a 1% higher interest rate. So they would get a 3.75% interest rate today or a 3.125 on a 15-year loan. I, ho I hope I answered that thoroughly. Yes, you, you, you answered it. And I'm getting a couple of calls about that. I think we're going to end up having our own show just about priority versus not priority, because now we're getting into the battle of, you know, NACA telling you where you can and can't live. And that's not the case. That that's is not at all. Not um, let me be clear about that. Um, NACA is here exclusively for low income people, low moderate income people 
and people purchasing in low moderate income neighborhoods. We're not telling you where you can, can and can't buy. You should buy wherever you want. You can even use NAC accounts when we get your financing together and then find other financing that doesn't fit within our loan program. All right. So we're not telling you where you can and cannot buy. We're telling you where the financing for this program is going to be applied. It's just like if you apply for a grant, right? Or, or food stamps. You know, it, it's not right if I make $150,000 a year. Um, I have one child and I'm looking and I want to get $600 a month in food stamps. You know, it's, it just doesn't work for that program. You know, it's a good social service. It's an excellent program. You know, just it's not for everyone. It's for the people who need it the most. And that's exactly what NAC is here for, the people who need us the most. And Eric, let's talk about grants. Since you brought up grants, uh, we'll, 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 well, Freda, Refreda, I hope I did not mess up your name too bad, but I'm gonna call you Will. Will said, you know, $17,000 in grant assistance that he got through Bank of America. That's what Bank of America is actually offering. Does NACA do that? Or the better question or the other question, the flip side to that question is, will NACA work with that? Uh, it depends on the grant. So I actually have here a list of hundreds of different grant programs um, that NACA and Bank of America already work with. And, and we have grant codes that we give Bank of America when we send your loan application. So those are already in place. Um, if you find a grant, and please, that's great when our members do that. If you find a grant, send it to us. You can send it to me. You can send it to any operations director. I'll get it vetted through Bank of America. It takes about two weeks generally for them to um, finish the process of connecting with that grant, making sure the terms are suitable for our program. And then they, they approve that grant to be used with the NACA Bank of America program. Uh, but we gotta be careful because Bank of America has separate grants that don't work with, that even that they fund, that do not work with the NACA program. Basically, they don't let you double dip on some of right. those. As you started the program with the NACA loan and NACA terms are phenomenal. Lender paid closing costs, no requirement for a down payment. So 100% financing, 110% financing for a rehab loan, meaning you're borrowing to buy the house and do repairs or rehab to the house. Um, you know, and you don't have to have perfect credit. We don't use credit scores at all and so on. I mean, the NACA terms are just so phenomenal that the bank, the Bank of America does not let people double dip. And Eric, let's talk about, uh, we got a couple of questions out there about payments owed. And Ellie, thank you for that. A couple of others, thank you. IRS payments, we were talking about the IRS earlier, and they're wanting to know, will the payment owed to the IRS and paid to the IRS affect your payment shop? And on the second part of that is, how does medical bills factor into being ready for homeownership? Does that hurt your qualifications at all? Ooh, very, very good question. So I'm going to take them separately because they're very different questions. So I'll start with the IRS. Do payments to the IRS impact your payment shop? Well, it impacts your affordability and it depends on how long you're going to continue to pay. So if you only have two or three payments left after those two or three payments, you can then start showing us what you're going to do with the money if you're not paying the IRS. So for example, if you're in an IRS payment plan for $500 a month we and, and you have you know, four payments left. We don't just assume that after you make your four payments, you're going to apply that money to a house. We look at your budget. We look at your bank statements. We see what you're going to do after you finish paying the IRS. If you do save that $400 a month, then we'll factor that to your affordability. If you go out and start, you know, going out more often, eating out more often, buying clothes, whatever, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see that that's your lifestyle. That's fine. We'll just understand your affordability that way. Because um, some people, you know, get into payment plans and they can barely hold on to them when they're over. Whew, I need a break from right. from having such a tight belt for so long, right. i.e. we don't want people to be house poor. So we verify affordability up front. Um, so, that, so that's IRS payments. Um, and just to just to put it out there, if you owe for the most recent year, you cannot qualify until that most recent year is paid off. Basically, you can't borrow the most recent year's money that you were supposed to pay into the IRS to apply towards your required payments, uh, required funds to, uh, to qualify for the NACA program. Oh, I said that in a way that everybody understands. Um, the second question you asked is, how will medical debt impact my process? Generally speaking, it won't. Generally speaking, if it's medical debt, um, just talk to your counselor about why it went unpaid. Um, for a lot of us, it's my insurance company was supposed to pay it. I wasn't sure what I was supposed to pay. Um, I can't afford to pay it. 
Um, I need to keep my job. I need to keep on pace of home ownership. Um, but I can't afford to manage that. Uh, generally speaking, it will not impact your, your process with NACA. Um, That's good. If you have unpaid medical debt, we're not going to hold against you. That is great to know. And we are approaching our final five minutes. So I'm going to ask a couple of questions, Eric. And so what, not a speed round, so to speak, but it is a speed round. It is what it is. <laughs> so, and this is a good one coming from Christy. Christy is saying, if I work remotely in one state, but want to purchase out of state, will I only need a letter from my employer saying it's okay to relocate and I'll keep my job and current pay? Excellent question. So you will need that, but you'll also need to have documented and demonstrated that you've lived in the area that you're going to purchase um, for at least six months. You so don't, are we you don't, saying they need to rent for six months somewhere? Um, if, if they've never lived there. Wow. So we don't want people to relocate to another area that they've never lived in before and buy immediately. Generally, people will make mistakes if they do that. They'll end up buying in, in neighborhoods um, that seem affordable, seem nice, but they don't know the area. So um, things that they need on a personal level or cultural le level are not there for them. They become miserable in that purchase because remember, through the NACA program, it is a long-term purchase. You know, we are a neighborhood stabilization program. So, you know, we expect our members to be in the houses for many, many years, but at least five years at least five years. And it is a long time, five years to live in the wrong neighborhood. Yes, for you. So we, we require our members to move there first, get to know the area before they purchase in the area. You know, if it's a family area, so they lived there, you know, five years ago and moved away for a job and then moving back, that's fine. You just need to document that you do know the area and you've been there before. And have because. history in that area. And have history in that area. Gotcha. Like, like, for example, I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina from New York City. When I first moved here, I mean, I looked at neighborhoods like, wow, look at, the, look at the difference in housing prices. I can, you know, I, I'd love to buy that house. Then as I got to know the city, I would have made some terrible decisions about where I purchased um, until I got to know the city and, and got to know where I like to, where I like to live my life. That makes sense. Love that answer, Eric. And this is a good one. I love Shamat, and I'm hoping I'm saying your, your name correct, Shamat. If I'm renting rooms to roommates on a house that I'm renting from the main owner, can the income I'm getting from the roommate's rent be considered as my monthly income on the top, of, on top it, of my job income? It cannot in terms of your oh, income ratio, on, no, it cannot. that's come border on. income. That's well, you don't even own the place. Well, that's border income. Um, <laughs> so you cannot use that as income because it's not a legal multifamily um, property. So it won't be underwritten to that gross income, but it will impact your affordability. And if your plan is to buy a house and, and have roommates who are going to help with your affordability, let your council know that and they'll factor into your affordability. Um, but no, it will not be factored into your debt to income ratios as additional income. I and, like that and, whole And I, I can almost guarantee that person is not filing down their taxes. <laughs> I can guarantee you <laughs> that too. It's because I'm, it's <laughs> I'm willing to bet you on that one. Last and final question is coming to Sterling. Uh, Sterling out there on Facebook, thank you so much. Can I use an investing brokerage account as a savings account? You can. Um, I wouldn't. Because it's, you know, um, because it fluctuates, um, you're probably better off using that towards your mineral required funds. Um, if, if I mean, if you have a brokerage account, then you know, and you've had it for more than a month, you know, your money just plummeted. You know, pretty much all of ours did, especially if you're in if you're investing in index stocks so, or you know mutuals, right? Um, the market just went way down. So you might have had. Uh, I'll, I'll talk to people with. 401ks, because that's the more common way. You know, the person is probably asking about a Charles Schwab or Merrill Lynch or some kind of stock brokerage account. But most of us know it in 401k. You know, you might have had $300,000 in 401k um, two months ago, and today you have 280 because the market took a dive. So I'd be really careful. Now, having said that, if somebody consistently puts $1,000 a month into that brokerage account, you can absolutely use that as payment shock because that's extra money they have. They're putting it away. Even if that money went down, that wasn't on them. They demonstrated their ability to take that $1,000 a month and put it into that brokerage account. 
So as long as they tell us, as long as they tell the council, okay, I'm going to stop putting the brokerage account and start putting it towards my housing payment, then yes, the short answer is yes, we can use that for a payment shock savings pattern. And the old clock on the hall say that's all we can do today. As always, thank you guys. You can always call us, like us, love us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Eric Exum, thank you so much. And to all of those who are out there wanting to participate, reach out to your local offices and find out what you can do in your neighborhood in conjunction with NACA to be great in the community. As always, Eric, Damien, it's been a whirlwind. Mask up, be safe. Thanks for listening. NACA's American Dream Program is a production of the Neighborhood Assistance Corporation of America, a national nonprofit organization fighting for economic justice through affordable homeownership and community advocacy. To learn more about NACA and our advocacy efforts, careers, NACA's Best in America Mortgage, or to join a NACA in your community, visit us at NACA.com. <laughs>